You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good evening and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg. I'm an opinions writer here at the Washington Post. We're so pleased that you've joined us tonight for this first installment of Next. This is a new series where we bring together rising change makers to talk about issues at the center of the conversation. For parents like me, um, that issue has been the ongoing baby formula shortage. And I'm joined today to discuss it with Laura Modi, the co-founder and CEO of Bobby Organic Infant Formula. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate having you here. Of course, delighted to be here. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Let's dive right in. I think for a lot of parents before the shortage, certainly before the pandemic, formula was something that people thought of as sort of like a public utility, like the water in your tap, the electricity in your socket. It was just always going to be there. You're a formula manufacturer. Talk us through what it actually takes to produce formula. Okay. I mean, that's the first kind of missed, you know, understanding is you're totally right. It's just assumed that it's like every other pantry product and it couldn't be further from the truth. This is the sole nutrition for a baby. So the level of safety and rigor to make this product goes beyond anything else. And honestly, it should. It should be hard to make this product. So everything from the sourcing of the ingredients to the testing to make sure that it doesn't have the bacteria or heavy metals that you need to ensure are out of these ingredients all the way through to the manufacturing process. And you can't just flip this on very quickly, which is why we're in the middle of this crisis. I've been getting a question a lot, which is, why don't you just ramp up? You can <laughs> ramp up, but you can't yes. move faster and you certainly can't take shortcuts. Yeah. So, I mean, but really back us up, you know, where do you start with the ingredients, especially since you're focused on trying to make organic formula, where do you start? And then what's the process, what it, does it take to actually process them into formula? Because I think people have not yeah. really understood, for example, that the Abbott plant that was closed down in Michigan, you know, once it starts up, it's going to be a while till that formula gets to shelves. So take us through step by step, treat us, you know, treat us like this is the basics. Okay. So first off, um, infant formula gets treated in many ways. You need to look at it like it's representing breast milk and it needs to meet the same nutritionals. So the profile of that is that it needs to meet the same carbs, proteins, and fats. So you are looking for a very, very specific profile to be able to make up the nutritional requirements for an infant. Once you've designed the recipe and you've said, this is the recipe that we now need to make, you go out and you find the ingredients for it. And you're right, for a product like Bobby, we've chosen some very specific organic ingredients. So you're now narrowed down to very few suppliers that you can turn to. Once you find that one ingredient you want, let's say your milk supplier, we, take, we got our milk from small batch farmers, Organic Valley, and we take that ingredient and we test it. And that during that testing process, you're essentially reassuring yourself that the nutritional makeup, the spec of this product matches the end recipe that you need to get to. And you do that across all the ingredients. Once you've done that, then you start to test for different bacterias. And you need to make sure that there's no bacteria found in it even before you put it through to the manufacturing process. We say we do 2,000, 2,000 
quality and safety checks on the product. And that happens all the way from the raw ingredients through the batching of it, the mixing of it, the processing, and then on the manufacturing line and the end product itself. So it's a very arduous, rigorous process to make infant formula. Now, you've talked a little bit about regulation and scrutiny on formula. And when you launched Bobby, you know, I, my understanding is that you thought you could market it as toddler formula, which has a sort of different profile and regulatory structure here in the U.S. You ended up going through a recall in part because of some questions about how you labeled the original batches. You know, what had that experience taught you about regulation of formula in the U.S.? And do you think the level of scrutiny for the product is appropriate? I mean, you I think you've implied that you do, but I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that. Oh, I get so much like PTSD when I have this conversation. One, because of like, you know, you think about it today, the the irony of it is that we've now created flexibilities in the system, allowing formula to come in from overseas. And that was exactly the reason we were stopped a few years ago. So there is a lot of regulation in place to bring a formula into the market. And that. I fully believe in. We have to have regulation in place. And in fact, we should have tighter regulation and we should have higher standards. But we also need to make sure that it's not preventing companies from being able to get into the market as well. And there's a little bit of tension between those two things. So here we were trying to make our product here in the US, but you look at the ability to get it made and there's very few manufacturers. In fact, there is only one contract manufacturer that makes all infant formula in the country. I mean, that's insane. If you really think about it, you go to any other CPG product, you can pick up the phone and you can call dozens of different manufacturers to be able to get your product made. So we often get these two things confused, the difference between regulation versus the ability to enter the market. I had to go to Germany. I had to go to the birthplace of where they make high quality infant formula, where there was an ample amount of manufacturers to be able to make our product. And over the course of a year, we developed the most beautiful infant formula, high quality ingredients, and it met the nutritional requirements set by the EC in Europe. But the difference is that European Commission and the FDA they don't have the same harmony between their nutritionals. So just because it's an infant formula in Europe does not make it an infant formula here in the US, which is why we needed to label it a toddler formula. Now, you know, you mentioned the sort of barriers to entry in the market, and you know, you talked about tighter regulation, the different standards internationally. I mean, do you think that there needs to be some sort of international standardization um, both, you know, to ease entrance into the market here in the U.S., uh, but also to eliminate the bureaucracy in that, you know, we've seen accompany uh, the administration's efforts to resolve the crisis here. And, you know, should there be some sort of international agreement on factory inspections? So, um, you know, the FDA could trust that European manufacturers are being inspected to the same standards. What are the ways to you know, streamline this process and, you know, streamline the standards internationally, because that seems to be just a huge bureaucratic tipping point, you know, tripping point, really, um, both in this current situation in terms of new entrants to the market. I mean, you're nailing it. Like, 
there is, there's babies in one continent and there's babies in another. And these two continents are saying that there is different rules and standards for how those babies get fed. But why? Why is that the case? We should be looking, and you're right, you remove the bureaucracy, you create a little bit of simplicity in the process, and we may be able to see more entrance. But today, we are not up-leveling our standards here in the US on a regular basis. And because of that, we're about 40 years behind meeting the latest science. In comparison to, you look in Europe, the last time they updated their nutritionals was in 2019. And now they have requirements put on industry where they have to put certain nutrients in, where here in the US we don't. So that kind of explains the problem by not doing this. And by harmonizing the standards, we then get to create, honestly, probably a little bit more pressure and competition to say from everyone, raise the bar raise the bar for everyone, and we all have a level of equality. Well, it also seems like you know, the American bureaucracy needs the resources to do its job. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's come out is um, in the middle of this shortage is that the FDA is just really under-resourced under on the food side. Um, is it your sense that you know, the FDA just needs more people? So if we're going to have this bureaucracy, they could at least move through it more efficiently? More resources and more funding, I think, personally, I think it will absolutely help move things a little bit faster. But I don't think we want things just to move faster. We need things to fundamentally change. And I have never, I truly have never been more hopeful to see this industry actually change than I have now. So my only caution is that just throwing more bodies and more money at the same problem never solves anything. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't in a company. I know that firsthand. But doing it for a government system, I can only imagine, is exactly the same issue. So if we do put more money in and more people, I really hope we take a hard look at the system and we go, just because it used to be that way doesn't mean it has to. Well, let's talk about the system a little bit, because I think a lot of people don't understand both how concentrated the formula market is in the US and the forces that are driving that concentration. Um, and you know, a major, major driver of that consolidation has been the contracts for uh, people, families who receive um, supplemental nutritional assistance, uh, the so-called WIC program. And what's happened in the US is that states give out these single source WIC contracts. So families who receive that nutrition prior to the, the current shortage could buy one you know, family of formula, depending on the state that they lived in. Now, the USDA has issued a lot of waivers. So WIC families, you know, if they previously could only buy a certain size of Similac canister, could go out and buy that in Enfamil, or could buy different sizes or different numbers of canisters. That's great. That seems like something that needs to be permanent. Um, but given that those contracts have been used to sort of determine pricing, you've got a very thorny system here. Now, you guys are direct to consumer. Uh, your product is comparatively expensive to, you know, a Target generic or a Kirkland generic, something like that. You know, what role do you see yourself playing in this ecosystem? Are, you know, is the long-term plan to scale so you can bring down pricing? Do you see yourself competing for some of those contracts if they got opened up? You know, it's you have yeah. a very successful business, but this is a big enchilada. 
where do you fit into it? First, I need to just compliment on your articulation of the WIC program because it's a complicated thing to navigate. And, you know, even watching the narrative and storytelling over how it's structured and what it's facilitating, it's um, I'm, I'm thrilled to see the knowledge of how it works and also what needs to change. Um, so I created Bobby with the desire to be affordable and accessible to all. I mean, we should not be just creating high quality nutrition for a subset of people. And also when you look at it, formula being a baby's first food, I mean, truly a baby's first food needs to be the first equalizer in everything. And by creating this separation between nutritions at that age already starts and an inequality that we shouldn't see. So I truly believe that up-leveling shouldn't just happen for a subset of people, it needs to happen across the board. So going back to the WIC program, which has been a challenge for a small company like Bobby, we need to meet certain eligibility standards to be accepted under WIC. And I hope that given some of the uh, crisis situations that we're seeing today that we're going to start seeing flexibilities where companies like Bobby that have different nutritionals can be available under WIC as well. And going back to the pricing side of it, I mean, again, this is basic business. Pricing is part of economies of scale. So if we remain small, if we remain small in comparison to the big players, our pricing is always going to look and appear bigger. And we need to create a little bit more market share equality to get to a place where there's pricing equality too. Well, and I'm sure, you know, you mentioned earlier that you work with a contract manufacturer for formula for folks at home who don't know exactly what that means. A company like Abbott or Reckitt um, has its own factories, but some of the smaller formula manufacturers work with a company that produces uh, both Bobby, but also store brand generics. Um, right and sort of handles that behind the scenes. And so for you to scale up, I mean, do you think it would be challenging to do that continuing to rely on a contract manufacturer or you know, do you see a factory in your future since standing up that process has its own regulatory challenges? I mean, absolutely. You get to, you get to a, a tipping point as a business where you need to reassess your own operation. This is not unique to Bobby, it's across the board in every industry. All of that said, contract manufacturers grow as their own customers grow as well. And there's huge value in having a manufacturer who has the regulatory compliance, the backing, the safety, the decades of expertise. And being a new player in the industry, one of the beautiful things that we've had, and especially for a product like Infant Formula, is you create what should be a case of like dual accountability. I don't have a conflict with many of their goals. I need to see certain safety standards, certain safety procedures in place. I will put third-party evaluators in there to make sure that I as a customer am very confident with what I'm seeing. That dual accountability, especially for a product like this, is has proven very successful for us. Mm. I wanted to shift to the conversation a little bit because obviously this is a huge business story, but it's a cultural story and it's a personal story for families as well. And I would be curious to 
hear more about what you think about the conversations that have sprung up around the formula shortage, uh, whether it's people talking, you know, more openly about using formula, whether it's, you know, peer-to-peer milk donation, which we've seen more of, um, you know, as people have looked for ways to feed their families. I mean, what are you hearing from your customers about how they feel about feeding their babies? Or how they are feeling about not being able to feed their babies, which is, you know, really where we're hearing the fire. You know, there's been a pretty big shift in the tone recently. We are watching people go from being disappointed to truly just angry and furious, and rightly so. Over the last, and let's just kind of bring it back to, I'm a mom myself, what mothers and what parents have gone through, specifically moms, specifically women, is that we've been dealing with a society where we're told to do everything, but we're not given the time. We're told to have babies and breastfeed them for as long as possible, but not given the time. We're in many ways being told to do things and have to do them, but we don't have the resources and means to be able to do it. And now we're dealing with situations where we're even getting certain rights taken away from us. But when you tell a mother, when you tell a woman that they may not be able to feed their baby, all other things go out the door and we move to anger. And that's what we're seeing. We created a hotline during this crisis, realizing that enough is enough. And what mothers wanted was the ability to vent and explain their frustration at this time. To be in a moment where you can't find food for your baby is just unacceptable. Unacceptable. So I'm curious. Powerful audio from that. I was hoping we could share that with our viewers. I'm a mom, a new mom. I have a five and a half month old and we've had a difficult, difficult breastfeeding journey. I exclusively pump. He doesn't like nursing. I've cried so many tears. I've tried everything. Supplements. I've tried. I've tried. I've tried. I've tried. And I was planning on switching to formula. Because, you know, we made it this long and um, I want a break. I've tried and I've cried so much. And to hear people respond to the formula shortage, which you should just proceed. People should be able to feed their babies. I've tried so hard. I I heard that clip for the first time yesterday and I really had a hard time with it. I I did a project recently where I looked at the data for how much time I'd spent feeding my son, um, who's he's seven months old, um, and it was 486 hours over the first six months of his life. And I know hearing, oh, just breastfeed, just breastfeed. It'll be like, it's fine. It's free. It's easy. Just set my hair on fire. And I am sure, I'm sure you've had the same reaction to hearing these stories. It's just, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. First off, I read your data and your, again, your ability to storytell a very challenging topic. We need more of that. We, we have to remove the conditioning that we have as a society that breastfeeding is easy everyone can do it 
and it's free because that pressure being put on new parents today. And by the way, it's not that breastfeeding is and breast milk is undeniably one of the most personal and dynamic and most beautiful things in the world. But telling someone that that's how you have to do it when you are unable to and you don't have the support system, the society to guide you through it is a very, very unfair narrative. We have to change it. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the need people have to just to vent to get this out. But I'm wondering if you are hearing that people are really just radicalized politically, right? Because to me, this has been a story about a sort of fundamental lack of concern for Mm -hmm. American families. I mean, from, you know, the idea that a dirty factory was operating and potentially making kids sick, and then that the turnaround on getting it operational again is this long. You know, I am wondering if you are hearing that parents are not just angry, but radicalized and demanding more from a political system that, and a, you know, and a commercial system that left them in this limbo, because I certainly have felt that, and I'm sure you're hearing that as well. I mean, it's it's very sad. Just, I mean, truly, is it's so sad that it's taken a crisis to to show that we can't feed our babies, to have us stand up and scream. But my God, are people getting loud about it? And you are right; it has become radicalized. And again, I am very hopeful that this radical reaction that people are having is actually going to be the thing that fundamentally changes it. And not just changes formula, but changes the conversation. And, you know, I I mentioned this um, in a recent interview as well, that my biggest challenge trying to break into this industry was not so much the manufacturing or the supply chain and everything else. That's hard and that's a given. My biggest challenge was the societal judgment When you leave a company to start infant formula, you're not being welcomed with open arms. This is not an attractive product or industry. And when you're not even being supported to try and change the industry, to put something out that's better, and this came from everywhere. There was a lot of conditioning that there was very little support to say that this is something that you should spend your time on. We have time for just one more question, which is a shame because I wish we could talk all day. What do you think the administration and the other competitors in the space need to do right now? Because this has clearly opened up. This is not one plan. This is one system, and it's a huge one. So what does the administration need to do to reassure American families that this not only that this is never going to happen again, but that this level of contempt for families is not tolerable? First. We need to remove any feeling, conversation, that this is political, that this is partisan. It's not. This is more than any one brand. It's more than any one party. And it's certainly bigger than just what the FDA can do. If we do not demonstrate that collectively as an industry with government, and we're all trying to fix this together on both sides, then we are sending a very bad message to families all across this country. Nothing about this should be political. Collectively, I hope that this is the one issue we all decide to come together on. 
Absolutely. Laura, thank you so much. This is our last exchange here, but hopefully not the end of our conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and one of the things that's been really interesting about covering this story at The Post is that I am not the only mom who's reporting on this as well. And I wanted to bring in two of my colleagues, Amy Joyce, who runs the On Parenting newsletter, and Helena, and Helena Andrews Dyer, who's a pop culture reporter and has a really interesting book coming out about motherhood. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me here today. Thanks thank for having you. me. Uh, Helena, I wanted to start by asking you, you know, what has your reaction been to watching this story unfold? Because you're a journalist, you're a mom. Um, what has it brought up for you? Since I think breastfeeding, formula feeding, these are some of the most fraught issues we face as moms. Um, and I was really curious to just hear how you've been responding to the story in both of those capacities. I, as a mom, I mean, I can't, I can't div divorce sort of like my journalism from being of a mother, course. right? Um, and None of us can. As, as a mom, I have felt so. It's it was almost like like PTSD, you know, like trauma inducing. My children are five and two and a half, and I had the privilege, um, the extreme privilege of being able to extend breastfeed with both of them. And when I think about my breastfeeding journey, I think. It was so, I think about it being so easy. And yet I had, um, I can't even think of the word of it now, like um, uh, like my breast got inflamed at oh, one point. Mastitis? Yes. Um, my nipples were cracked. With the first one, literally, I want to say the first two months, every time she would latch, I would have to brace myself to the point where I would like, my body would cinch up, right? And I think of that as easy. <laughs> like, I think like, oh, that's all I had to do. You know, unfortunately, I didn't, fortunately, I didn't come to a situation where colleagues of mine at the post where, you know, your kid has a milk allergy. So now you've stopped eating all dairy for however long to make sure there's no longer blood in your newborn's diapers. Like the whole, all of it is so trauma inducing and stressful. Um, and this just brought, it was heartbreaking reading the stories. It was heartbreaking hearing that mother in the audio that you played, just where you're That's just fine. at your, you're at your wit's end. And it's just like, I just need to feed my child. Help me feed my child, right? Um, yeah, the whole, all of it has just been, I've, I've had like PTSD, basically. Amy, I mean, I know you're hearing from a lot of parents individually. Um, I'd be curious to hear what they're telling you about what this has been like for them. Uh, well, it's a lot like that heartbreaking soundbite we just we just heard. Um, and I got to tell you, I'm a reporter. I've reported on some very tough things. I find myself choking up a lot of times with these parents, with these mothers who have talked to me. You mentioned how um, breastfeeding is so fraught, and it is. And this one mother I spoke with, she had tried for two and a half months. She tried everything to breastfeed her child, her son, her only baby. She even said that she was using a pump that a lactation consultant got her that had was a similar pump to what was used to help an elephant recover from mastitis. And she had tried absolutely everything, crying on the phone with me, said she finally gave up, finally agreed that it was time for formula. Her baby needed to gain weight. And guess what? This happened. So parents are distraught. Dads I've talked to are distraught. They One dad said to me, I spent the measly amount of time I had off to be with my baby searching for formula all over um, 
Washington State. So it's just, it's heartbreaking story after story and it's not stopping. I'm still hearing it. It's not slowing down. Um, people might be forgetting that this is happening because so many other things are happening right now, unfortunately. Um, but parents are still suffering and, and begging to find ways to feed their children. Amy, I'm curious what you um, think so far about the administration's response. I mean, Biden met uh, virtually with a group of formula makers yesterday. I mean, he's offered a lot of personal empathy. At the same time, there's sort of a conflicting timeline about when all of these efforts kicked into high gear that I think a lot of us are struggling to understand. So I'm curious what your impression has been about the administration response. Well, it sounds like there were sort of a lot of issues This started what back in October um, when a whistleblower came forward and then the report didn't sort of reach the FDA or the people it needed to reach for quite a while. And it sounded like some politicians, some um, Congress people were starting to figure this out in February. But um, now Biden is saying he didn't hear about it uh, until it had already started happening. And some reporters said that they would talk to people, you know, in the halls of uh, the Capitol and these politicians, these um, lawmakers had no idea this was going on. What formula shortage uh, somewhere, somewhere asked. So it's very frustrating. Um, it sounds like things are starting to move along. The fact of the matter is parents don't have formula and a lot of parents need specialty formula and that is even more difficult to find. Um, their babies that have allergies and whatnot, that's not coming on the shelves. We're bringing in more formula or trying to ramp up um, formula and get it on the shelves, but the, the specialized formula is uh, even harder to find. Yeah, Helena, you know, as a cultural observer, I'm curious what you think about the conversation um, around the shortage. And do you see shifts in the way that people are talking about breastfeeding and formula feeding? Um, when we were talking before this event, you mentioned the sort of specifically racialized narratives and images around breastfeeding for Black women. Um, and I'm just curious what you make of a conversation that has become public, even though it's one that's we've all as mothers have conducted in private for so long. I thought it was really interesting um, when Laura sort of um, she spoke about the fact that, you know, as mothers, as parents, we're told to do everything, but given no support, <laughs> no support, no time, no resources. And the shortage, this crisis is lock and step with that, right? It's just the idea that, oh, they'll, they'll figure it out. The parents will just figure it out. The moms will just figure it out. Just breastfeed, right? And yeah. literally, it goes down to this complete misinformation and ignorance about how women's bodies work, right? Um, you know, if I hadn't been breastfeeding before, I can't all of a sudden start breastfeeding. You know, that is not how your breasts work. Uh, and the fact that people simply don't know that. Beyond the fact that the culture around breastfeeding in this country has been so up and down over the last century, you know, we talked about we talk about the fact that historically, you know, women were did breastfeed for a very long time until the 70s, around the 70s, where U.S. and Canadian women were taught were it was sort of like this campaign to think that you know, oh, breastfeeding. That, that wasn't the best for your child, right? If you really wanted your child to get the best nutrients, you needed to do formula, right? And that's what I think a lot of us 70s, 80s babies sort of grew up on. And then there was a shift, a cultural shift, like, oh, no, no, breast is best, right? And then it was fed is best. And as, as a mom, you're you're just like, you have whiplash. What are you supposed to do? It's It's really terrifying. And then when you enter the racialized element of it, right, uh, for Black women, Black women 
don't breastfeed at as high of a rate as um, white moms and Latinx moms. And part of the reason is support, right? Part of the reason is support starting in the hospital. Um, part of the reason is uh, culturally, what it what does it look like for me to pull out my breast in public to feed my baby as opposed to someone else who doesn't look like me, right? The stares that I get as opposed to someone else. That's why there is the Black Breastfeeding Week, right? Um, that's been going on for almost a decade, just to normalize breastfeeding amongst Black women. So there, there the issue is so incredibly complicated, so incredibly complicated. And it's something that we've just, mothers have just been told to deal with it on their own, right? Until it reaches this crescendo and now it's a national crisis. But people have been ringing the bell on this for years. Uh, I mean, Amy, you and I have talked about what the pumping situation at the Post was in an earlier generation in a different building. <laughs> um, you know, those of us who are nurse air kids who are pumping in the office now have dedicated lactation rooms, but, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation even across sort of half a generation suggests to me that, you know, that whiplash does, and that evolution in some good directions is evident even among the three of us in this conversation. I mean, how do, how do you perceive that things have changed both here in our workplace and, you know, in the larger culture? Um, so I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, and it's amazing to me. I was thinking about this today before we sat down to chat. Um, you know, they're 14 and 12, they're pretty old. And yet I remember breastfeeding and pumping as if it were last week. So it sticks with you. But I am so glad that you all have a better situation than we did. And I know I had a better situation than the women who came before me um, at the post. So yeah, I used to pump in a closet, a storage closet. Um, but at the same time, a few of us, we all sort of had babies at the same time. We talked to folks at the post and we did get a, a pumping room um, created it through the sports section, I believe. We had to walk through the sports section and go into a what was formerly a bathroom. So we were very proud and excited to have this space. Um, and now that I see the lactation rooms that exist now, it's incredible. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of a beautiful space and it's clean and it's lit well and you've got schedules going on. So it's great to see how this has progressed over the years. Um, and it's great to know that I was saw some of that progression, that I actually had a space. It was dedicated. Uh, one of the spaces was dedicated for that, but it was still very difficult. And even though the generation of parents who have babies now have these beautiful lactation rooms, it's still difficult. As, um, as was already uh, expressed, you know, what do we say? Mothers were told to do everything, but we're not given the time to do it. So even in a place that has lactation rooms, even in a place that allows for pumping, and by the way, companies are supposed to allow for pumping, it's hard. It's very hard to have the time to do it. Um, I think, you know, there are companies, of course, that don't have maternity leave, don't have the space or time to give women, they don't give women time off. There are women who go back to work weeks after their babies are born before they've even healed. How do you deal with breastfeeding or pumping or finding formula when there aren't, isn't formula on the shelves. It's a very uh, frustrating situation. But, you know, we've been fighting for maternity leave in this country for over 100 years, and that still hasn't happened. You know, it's interesting to me that all three of us have talked about nursing, and I think that one of the sort of taboo subjects that has come up in this conversation is why women might want to choose formula, um, whether to have their bodies back, to have their time back. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I put in 486 hours in the first 
six months of my son's life. And, you know, it is, to me, it feels taboo for a woman to stand up and say, I want that, at least some of that time back for myself. And, you know, if there's something that can come culturally out of this conversation, I'm curious what both of you would wish for, because for me, it's just greater honesty about, you know, the cost of all of these choices, but it, there's so much to wish for. I, for me, I would say it's understanding that how you feed your baby, how you decide to feed your baby is an incredibly personal choice. And there are so many different factors, right, that go into that decision. Like you said, maybe I just want my time back. Maybe I literally don't have the time. I just don't want to breastfeed. Like, I, that's just not something I want to do. All of those factors are equally important, but they are completely dependent on the woman who is doing it, right? The mother who is in charge of this baby's life, right? It's I don't get a say in what she does, like her husband, you know, her partner probably doesn't even get to say what she does with her body. And that's the thing, like literally don't, you cannot tell a woman what she decides to do with her body. And I think for me, yes, we've all talked about nursing. And for me, nursing was a personal choice, something I wanted to do, but I always had in the back of my head, if this doesn't work out, I can always fall back on formula. I always thought, I had that safety net. You know, if I can't do this, if it's too painful, if I can't take the time, I can always fall back on formula. And it's about choice. And I and I I really, really hope out of this conversation, one, we understand that choice is so incredibly important and that women have to have the choice to do the things that they want to do. And that we just understand better as a culture how women's bodies work <laughs> and, and, and how, how these babies actually get fed and how difficult it truly, truly is. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing, really choice and, and understanding that we need to make sure all those choices are available to all women, not just women with privilege, to all women. Amy, any wish list? <laughs> wish list? Oh, gosh, where does it? start where does it end but um acceptance and that is across the board parenting um i wish people would just sort of as a society understand that women that mothers that parents are trying the best they can in honestly what is not the easiest of situations we are not the easiest country to be a parent in and so as we you know talk about this formula situation and as it brings up all these issues with breastfeeding and pumping and formula and breast is best and, you know, fed is best, whatever the situation may be. I just hope that out of this comes a lot of acceptance. And as a society, I would like us all to figure out how to support parents better, whether it's just, you know, your neighbor, your friend, your colleague, or on a much larger level. And, you know, Amy, Helena, thank you both so much for the time where I hate to let us go, um, but hopefully this conversation will continue. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis, now has its own podcast, where you can listen to all episodes in one place. Subscribe to First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.